Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 39, American Legion versus the American Humanist Association, better known as, or at least a lot easier to say, as the Bladensburg Cross Case. This case came out last week, so you probably heard about it. It came out June 20th. As I'm recording, it's the 26th. This case is where the U.S. Supreme Court said that this big cross, like 40-foot tall cross, which includes the base of it, on public property in Maryland could stay because it was not a violation of the First Amendment's prohibition against government respecting an establishment of religion. And we'll go over how the court came to that conclusion. This cross case is one of many the court has released near the end of its term, and tomorrow is going to be Thursday the 27th, and more big cases are going to come out tomorrow. So in the coming weeks, we're going to go over a lot of these cases that have just come out in the past couple of weeks. If there's any particular one of them that you wanted to talk about, let me know. You can do that via Twitter, at Blue Carp, and on my personal Facebook page, facebook.com slash Blue Carp. I'd love to hear from you, and you can also communicate with me through the podcast page on Facebook, which is the Law with D.K. Williams. And if you'd like to keep this podcast going, you can donate at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. And before we get into it, you can check out in the show notes, there is a video, uh, thanks to Liberty in the Rocks, the Denver chapter, where I presented to them a couple, about a month or two ago. And we went over some of the worst Supreme Court cases ever handed down by the Supreme Court. So if you'd like to check that out, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. And there'll also be a link on the Facebook page for it. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And also, I'm restarting a collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can find us there at speakeasyideas.com. There'll be more about that in the upcoming future. So like, rate, share, help get this podcast more exposure any way you can, and we appreciate it. So who are the named participants in this case? So you've got the American Legion. The American Legion, which, by the way, has the coolest URL I have ever seen. It's just legion.com. American Legion is one of the parties. They're the first one, so they get their name on the case. Defending this cross. So who is American Legion? This is from their mission statement on that cool website, legion.com. They say, the American Legion was chartered and incorporated by Congress in 1919 as a patriotic veterans organization devoted to mutual helpfulness. It is the nation's largest wartime veterans service organization committed to mentoring youth and sponsorship of wholesome programs in our communities, advocating patriotism and honor, promoting strong national security, and continued devotion to our fellow service members and veterans. There you have that. Now, my maternal grandfather was in the American Legion. He was a CB in the Navy, served in South Pacific during World War II. And one thing I remember, he had this white baseball cap with the American Legion logo on it. It was a cool hat. American Legion, also known for putting on baseball leagues throughout the country for teenagers, 13 through 19 years old. American Legion baseball is a big thing. So that's who American Legion is in this case. Obviously, they're in this case defending this cross because they were involved with the initial construction of it and they maintained it for a long time. And I'm going to contrast the American Legion's press release about their victory in this case with the American Humanist Association's press release about their loss in the case. The Legion describes the outcome on its website in an article called Bladensburg Ruling Victory for Freedom. And a link to that release is in the show notes. Who opposed it? The American Humanist Association, among others, but the Humanist Association gets their name on it. Now, from their website, which is AmericanHumanist.org, they describe themselves as 
We have stood as the voice of humanism in the United States for over 75 years. We, the American Humanist Association, strive to bring about a progressive society where being good without a God is an accepted and respected way to live life. We are accomplishing this through our defense of civil liberties and secular governance, by our outreach to the growing number of people without traditional religious faith, and through a continued refinement and advancement of the humanist worldview. So that's who they are. They definitely do not want any religion tied in with the government in any way. So how does this group, group who lost, who wanted something to be done about the cross, what does their press release say about the Supreme Court decision? It reads, Supreme Court approves publicly funded Christian favoritism. Interesting to see the two different groups spin on it, eh? This was a 7-2 decision. 7-2 in favor of letting the cross stay. But there were a couple of concurring opinions that concurred in the judgment only, which means they didn't go along with the rationale of the majority, but they got to the same place where the cross can stay anyway. And so we'll get into some of the, some of the reasons there's difference on that. So it's 7-2 to two in favor of letting the cross stay. Opinion was written by Samuel Alito. We'll go down the roster like we always do. He has been on the court since 2006, nominated by W. He went to Yale Law School, and he's 69 years old. I'm going to go over their ages as well, because they're on there for life, and that's the only limit that they have. Alito wrote it. He was joined by Chief Justice. John Roberts, also appointed by W, but he took the bench in 05, also an Ivy League school, but he went to Harvard. He is 64 years old, and he's with the entire majority opinion. Also, on the side of keeping the cross up is Clarence Thomas, but he concurred in the result only. He did not agree with the court's analysis. Basically, he thinks the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, part about Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion, he says that should never have been incorporated as to be applicable to the states, so he agrees the cross can stay. He just gets there a completely different way, and he's the only one on the Supreme Court that doesn't think the First Amendment Establishment Clause should apply to these states. So Thomas was nominated by H.W. Bush in 91. He went to Yale Law. He's 71 years old right now. Stephen Breyer joined the majority in toto. Lawyers like to use foreign phrases like that all the time, as you know. So he signed under the whole thing in toto. Breyer was nominated by Bill Clinton in 94, also Harvard Law, and he's 80 years old. Now, Elena Kagan, normally you would think of as being a big separation of church and state because of her progressive ideology. She joined the majority. The Supreme Court throws out a case they had been using in the past for these establishment clause cases called Lemon was the name of it. And so the majority basically throws it out without saying we're throwing it out. She doesn't want to completely throw it out. So that's why she didn't join those two parts. She was nominated or took the bench in 2010, an Obama appointee, also Harvard Law School, and she's 59. So we're getting younger here. Neil Gorsuch did not sign onto the majority opinion, but he concurred in the judgment. Gorsuch, who said, this American Humanist Association shouldn't have had standing to bring this case at all. The concept of standing is very important, but it can be very boring. But in essence, Gorsuch is saying is that they didn't really suffer any harm. Driving by a cross and seeing a cross isn't enough in his view. That doesn't give you the actual damages to sue. They're just concept of being an offended observer, which he says doesn't convey standing, although other courts have held that it does. But in the, again, in this case, only he and Thomas said that. So they both want the cross to stay, but they're getting to it in different ways. Brett Kavanaugh also signed on to Alito's majority opinion. He was nominated in 18, or took office in 18, Trump nominee, also a Yale Law graduate. He is 54 years old, so another relatively young guy. He could be there 30 years and more. The dissents were RBG, who was nominated by Clinton, took the bench in 93 at the Supreme Court bench. So she agreed with the American Humanists, in essence, that, yeah, this is obviously a religious symbol. The government is helping take care of it. It's on government land. And she's like, come on, you can't have the government doing this. And Sonia Sotomayor agreed with her. So those are the two dissents. RBG was, went to Columbia Law School, and she's 86 years old. Sotomayor, not 
nominated by Obama in 09. She's a Yale Law grad. She's 65 years old. So you got a five-person majority opinion, except Kagan on two sections, which aren't necessary to the conclusion. You got two separate concurrences, agreed with the result that the cross can stay, but not the rationale. So that's seven in favor of letting the cross stay, and you got your two dissenters. So going down the roster, we've got right now on the U.S. Supreme Court, four Harvard Law grads, four Yale law school grads, and one from Columbia RBG. The modern Supreme Court comes from a very small pond of Ivy League elites, and I'm using air quotes for that. And I don't think that's good. We can get somebody from Cal Berkeley, somebody from Texas, University of Texas at Austin, UVA, Michigan, somewhere other than this tiny group of private Northeast schools. You want to talk about diversity? Let's get some diversity on the U.S. Supreme Court. So what are the facts? How do we get here? This cross is in Bladensburg, Maryland, and it's part of a memorial park honoring veterans. The cross itself is 40 feet tall, and the American humanists did not like this. So they sued for its removal or some other appropriate remedy, but basically they wanted to remove. The history of the cross goes all the way back to 1918 when a group of private citizens started to request private donations to build a World War I memorial. And specifically the people that died from Prince George's County, which is where Bladensburg is located, people who died in World War I. Their private attempt to raise money didn't quite work. They didn't get enough. So the American Legion took over and finished building the project in 1925. So at this point, the government's not involved. American Legion is a private organization. Private money started it. It's on private land. But then in 1961, the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission acquired the cross and the land, as well as they took on the responsibility to maintain, repair, otherwise care for the cross. The American Legion, in this agreement, retained the right to use the site for ceremonies. So the Humanist Association, several other uh, non-Christian residents of Prince George's County, expressed offense at the cross, which they contended amounts to government affiliation with Christianity. The plaintiffs, the anti-cross people, lost at the district court level on summary judgment. That means none of the pertinent facts were in dispute, but the application of those facts to the Constitution was in dispute. The district court judge ruled in favor of the American Legion and the cross, let it stay. It went up to the Fourth Circuit, which reversed in a split decision two to one, and they say, no, you guys got to do something about the cross. Using this lemon test, right, that the one that the court has basically thrown out, and they change it here in this case. So that brings us to the Supreme Court decision where the majority said that the cross can stay. So in simple terms, the issue is, does the display and maintenance of this cross by a government body, is it constitutional? Specifically, does it violate the First Amendment prohibition against the government respecting an establishment of religion? Now, of course, as you know, because you listen to the law podcast, the First Amendment as written only applies to the federal government. Congress shall make no law. But the Supreme Court has incorporated that prohibition through the 14th Amendment and applied it to the states and its subdivisions. Alito introduces the case for us. He writes, Since 1925, the Bladensburg Peace Cross has stood as a tribute to 49 area soldiers who gave their lives in the First World War. 89 years after the dedication of the cross, respondents, the American Humanist Association, filed this lawsuit, claiming that they are offended by the site of the memorial on public land and that its presence there and the expenditure of public funds to maintain it violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. To remedy this violation, they asked the federal court to order the relocation or demolition of the cross, or at least the removal of its arms. That was one of the things they suggested would satisfy them. The leader goes on, although the cross has long been a preeminent Christian symbol, its use in the Bladensburg Memorial has a special significance. The court goes on, describes the rows and rows of plain white crosses marking the European graves of American servicemen that died over there. And that symbolism, according to the court, came to represent the sacrifice of all Americans who died in World War I, not just Christians. RBG and Sotomayor in their descent don't agree with that. They say that's not true. They point out that their crosses are a Christian symbol and that Jewish servicemen got a Star of David. Alito brings that up too and talks about it, but he says still most of them were crosses 
that image represents the dead of World War I, not just the Christian dead. Alito goes on with the majority of the court. The adoption of the cross as the Bladensburg Memorial must be viewed in that historical context. For nearly a century, the Bladensburg Cross has expressed the community's grief at the loss of the young men who perished, its thanks for their sacrifice, and its dedication to the ideals for which they fought. So none of those things have anything to do with Christianity, right? So Christianity uses the cross as a symbol of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and humanity's savior. But Alito in the court saying it also means these other things in this context, especially historically. The court makes the point that taking it down now would show, quote, a hostility toward religion that has no place in our establishment clause traditions. And I do think that's a reasonable conclusion. If you started taking down crosses that were on government property, it would be reasonable to see that as an anti-religious government action. And that's what Alito is saying. He goes on, contrary to respondents' intimations, that's the humanist people, there is no evidence of discriminatory intent in the selection of the design of the memorial or the decision of a Maryland commission to maintain it. The religion clauses of the Constitution aim to foster a society in which people of all beliefs can live together harmoniously, and the presence of the Bladensburg Cross on the land where it has stood for so many years is fully consistent with that aim. So that's Alito, that's the majority. And court really gets into the meaning of the cross as a symbol. They point out several purely secular uses of it as a symbol, and I learned a lot of stuff here reading about this. The International Committee of the Red Cross, they've got a, a cross, right, on their symbol, or on their logo. They use it because it's on the Swiss flag, and Switzerland is neutral. So the Red Cross symbol is the Swiss flag, but with the colors inverted. So the Swiss flag is a white cross on a red background. The Red Cross symbol, Natch, is a red cross on a white background. So Red Cross uses that symbol, even in countries with almost no Christians in it, for purely secular purposes and identification of their group. The court mentions India and the Japanese affiliates of the International Red Cross have the cross. And in those instances, in that context, it's not religious. Now, the Supreme Court acknowledges that the cross was originally chosen for the Swiss flag for religious purposes. But their point is that it, the meaning has changed over time and for each specific usage of the symbol. That's the point they're trying to get across here. To it, the court says, So an image that began as an expression of faith was transformed. So they go on for many pages about that, giving other examples, but that's the gist of the court's holding. Symbolism has changed. It's not just Christianity anymore. It has secular meaning. So then more specific facts surrounding this particular cross in Maryland are discussed by the court. In 1918, residents of Prince George's County, Maryland, formed a committee for the purpose of erecting a memorial for the county's fallen soldiers. The court goes on. Although we do not know precisely why the committee chose the cross, it is unsurprising that the committee, and many others commemorating World War I, adopted a symbol so widely associated with that wrenching event. So they talk about how this private committee sought private donations, and I find this interesting and pertinent to monetary policy in the U.S. The court points out many of those who responded to the request for money to build the monument were local residents who gave small amounts. Donations of 25 cents to $1 were the most common. So again, so far, no government involvement at all. Private group, private money. If donations, a lot of the do donations were $1 back in 1918, how much is that today? Well, $1 in 1918 is $16.96 today. So almost 17 times less than it was 101 years ago. So that's an inflation rate of 1,700%. Read The Creature from Jekyll Island for more on how the Fed devalues currency by printing more money in effect, creating this regressive tax in effect that hurts the poorest on a percentage basis the most. We don't need the Fed. It benefits those politically connected people close to the government. Back to the cross. So the Supreme Court notes that by 1922, 
Remember, they started collecting money in 1918. Four years later, the committee had run out of funds, and progress on the cross had stalled. The local post of the American Legion took over the project, and the monument was finished in 1925. Court describes it. The American Legion's emblem is displayed at its center, and the words valor, endurance, courage, and devotion are inscribed at the base of the monument. The pedestal also features a 9 by 2 foot bronze plaque explaining that the monument is, quote, dedicated to the heroes of Prince George's County, Maryland, who lost their lives in the Great War for the liberty of the world. So that's what's imprinted on it, among other things. Those four words, purely secular, valor, endurance, courage, devotion, no particular Christian relevance. And the plaque goes on. It says more. The plaque lists the names of 49 local men, both black and white, who died in the war. It identifies the dates of American involvement and quotes President Wilson's request for a declaration of war, quote, the right is more precious than peace. We shall fight for the things we have always carried nearest our hearts. To such a task, we dedicate our lives. That's the plaque described. So the plaque doesn't say anything about Jesus or religion or Christianity at all, but there's a huge cross on it. So over the years, the people in Maryland, in Prince George's County, established other memorials around the cross. These include a WW2 memorial, a Korea memorial, Vietnam memorial, 9-11 memorial, and a War of 1812 memorial. So the Bladensburg Cross for World War I goes up first, and then all these other memorials eventually start to surround it. And again, as long as the American Legion owned the land and maintained the cross, purely private endeavor, no constitutional issue whatsoever. But, the court says, as the area around the cross developed, the monument came to be at the center of a busy intersection. In 1961, the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission acquired the cross and the land on which it sits from the American Legion in order to preserve the monument and address traffic safety concerns. So now we got a state agency using tax money on state land that they just acquired, as state agencies are known to do. Alito goes on, in 2012, nearly 90 years after the cross was dedicated, and more than 50 years after the commission acquired it, because remember, those first 40 years were no constitutional issue at all. So 50 years since it's been a government property. After that time, the American Humanist Association lodged a complaint with the commission. The complaint alleged that the cross's presence on public land and the commission's maintenance of the memorial violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. So the district court said the cross could stay. The district court relied on this prior Supreme Court case, Lemon versus Kurtzman. The Supreme Court here in this American Legion case criticizes Lemon and in essence abandons it. The concurring opinions make specific reference to it being overturned, but the majority opinion doesn't actually say that, but it might as well have done so. So the lower courts use this lemon test, and the Supreme Court in this case talks about why it's bad, and they talk about applying the lemon test, what you have to do is some challenged government action, like having a cross that the government maintains on government property. They have to look at, one, does it have a secular purpose? Two, is there a principal or primary effect of the event, in this case a cross, that neither advances nor inhibits religion? And three, does it foster an excessive government entanglement with religion? So that's the lemon test, and I know what you're thinking. Well, that clears it up. Of course it doesn't. It's completely useless as a rule. Its application is completely subjective, and a judge could come out any way he wanted using that test. I mean, how do you determine if something is an excessive government entanglement? There's absolutely no guidance to that. Excessive is a purely subjective word. So it was useless. And the Supreme Court says, we're not going to use that anymore. And this is the two parts of the majority opinion Kagan didn't join. She still believes Lemon has some value. But she's down with all the rest of it. So when it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, now Alito lays it out this way. The Establishment Clause of the First Amendment provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. While the concept of a formally established church is straightforward, pinning down the meaning of a law respecting an establishment of religion 
has proved to be a vexing problem. Alito's right about that. And they point out how prior to 1947, the clause only applied to the feds, but in 47 is when the Supreme Court incorporated it in the case Everson. So Alito, writing for the majority, says after Everson recognized the incorporation of the clause, however, the court, Supreme Court, faced a steady stream of difficult and controversial establishment clause cases, ranging from Bible reading and prayer in the public schools. And they also mentioned like blue laws. Can laws make businesses close on Sunday? Also issues about state subsidies for church-related schools. And the Lemon Test was supposed to make deciding these issues easier. Alito, in effect, writes the obituary for the Lemon Test when he says, If the Lemon Court thought its test would provide a framework for all future Establishment Clause decisions, its expectation has not been met. There's your obituary. Then the court goes on for pages describing many cases uh, where Lemon was basically useless. And Alito writes, The test has been harshly criticized by members of this court, lamented by lower court judges, and questioned by a diverse roster of scholars. So they're putting this thing to bed. And instead, one of the things that the court is now going to do in these cases, they say we are now going toward application of a presumption of constitutionality for long-standing monuments, symbols, and practices. Okay, that's a major conclusion. A presumption of constitutionality for long-standing monuments, etc. So if something's been there a long time, we will presume it is constitutional. Now, presumption can be overcome, but it means the Supreme Court starts with the idea that something long-standing is constitutionally permissible. Of course, we've got a similar problem. The court gives no guidance about what constitutes long-standing, but it doesn't tell you if something, how long something has to be there before it qualifies for this presumption. It just has to be long-standing. The court goes on, written by Alito, as time goes by, and I can't say that without thinking about Casablanca, as time goes by, the purposes associated with an established monument, symbol, or practice often multiply. Got that? So the purposes associated with it can change, like he was talking about earlier. He says, take the example of the Ten Commandments. For the believing Jews and Christians, the Ten Commandments are the Word of God, handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. But the image of the Ten Commandments has also been used to convey other meanings. They have historical significance as one of the foundations of our legal system, and for largely that reason, they are depicted in the marble frieze in our courtroom and in other prominent buildings in our nation's capital. Prior Supreme Court decisions had said those depictions are constitutionally allowed, the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Courtroom. So it seems to me that if the Supreme Court itself has the Ten Commandments hanging up in its courtroom, and that's constitutionally permissible, that's cool, it's hard to argue that a cross in a traffic circle isn't. And I know many would argue that the Ten Commandments shouldn't be up there either. I get it. Yet, they are. And as the idea of precedent and stare decisis has become a big issue here recently in this current term, because a lot of progressives are frightened that the Supreme Court's going to overturn Roe, so they're now they're all of a sudden very, 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 very concerned about precedent. But in a case like this, RBG and Sotomayor don't really care about it. So they pick and choose when it's important to them. And I got to mention one more thing about popular culture, because the Supreme Court mentions the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. They describe how, and I didn't know this, you learn all kinds of stuff reading Supreme Court cases. The director, Cecil B. DeMille, famous Hollywood guy, right? So when the movie was coming out, The Ten Commandments, he sponsored an existing campaign that was run by a group called the Fraternal Order of the Eagles. And this group was trying to distribute copies of The Ten Commandments. Private organization, they definitely had a religious aspect to what they were doing. We want people to see these. So DeMille sponsored this group to hand these out. He wanted to do some that were made out of stone, right? Like they are in the movie. And the court points out that he is simultaneously promoting his film and public awareness of the commandments. So you got Hollywood pipping out the movie. 
you got this fraternal order of the eagles trying to spread the word of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are religious, but DeMille was using them to advertise his movie and using biblical imagery to pimp out a Hollywood movie. Definitely not religious. I think Alito is right on that. So he goes on to say, with that as an example, among some others, with sufficient time, religiously expressive monuments, symbols, and practices can become embedded features of a community's landscape and identity. The community may come to value them without necessarily embracing their religious roots. The court's making the point. Religious things can also have non-religious meanings, much like a cross memorializing the World War I dead. That's the point Alito and the majority is making. And they make another example, and I find this argument interesting, with other application as well. The court says, Religion undoubtedly motivated those who named Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Las Cruces, New Mexico, Providence, Rhode Island, Corpus Christi, Texas, and the countless other places in our country with names that are rooted in religion. Yet few would argue that this history requires that these names be erased from the map. He says, familiarity itself can become a reason for preservation. And I see that argument having other applications because there's definitely a movement right now to rename things after people who did something bad. I just saw the other day, and I put this on Facebook, an article about how a theater took Lillian Gish's name off of it because she appeared in Birth of a Nation back in 1915. She was a local to where this theater was, so they were honoring a local actress, famous actress. But now, after it's been there for a long time, they take her name off because she was in a racist movie in 1915. Here in Colorado, Mount Evans, you can see from Denver, it's named after the second territorial governor of the state, and he was involved with ordering what turned out to be the massacre at Sand Creek. Obviously, bad, bad things going on there. So a lot of people want to rename Mount Evans. There's a neighborhood in, in Denver called Stapleton. He was a mayor a long time ago of Denver, and he everybody knew he was in the KKK. It wasn't a secret back then. So there's efforts to change these names. But as Alito says... Sometimes familiarity can strip them of their original meaning, or familiarity becomes a reason to keep them, regardless of their original meaning. He's talking about in religious cases, religious names, religious monuments, but I think it applies to instances of human beings that are bad. And for example, I mean, everybody has done something that should disqualify them from having anything named after them. Everybody alive now, everybody alive in the history of the world. So we can either get over that, or we can just start numbering everything like the public schools in New York City. Now, I go to PS 812 or whatever. Just name, just number everything. What building are we going to? Uh, we're going to building number 1811. Don't have to worry about bad names or bad connotations or bad history. But if we're going to keep the names, we can keep the names and ignore their original meanings. Hang with me here. For example, popular sports channel. There's like eight of them now. ESPN. That used to actually stand for something. Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. It doesn't stand for that anymore. ESPN has officially done away with its its original meaning and said now it's just the letters that don't stand for anything. It doesn't stand for anything now. It did, but it doesn't anymore. KFC used to stand for Kentucky Fried Chicken. It doesn't anymore. It's just KFC. They made the decision that they don't want fried in their name because times have changed. It's got a bad connotation. So KFC now is just three random letters to name a place that you can buy chicken at. KFC doesn't stand for anything anymore. ESPN doesn't stand for anything anymore. Same names, but what the names mean has changed. And a lot of things are named after people we have no idea who they are, at least from my perspective. I live on Beeler Street. I have no idea who Beeler was. And it doesn't matter because the street name helps me get the mail. It helps me tell people how to find me. Here's my address, Beeler Street. It serves a purpose beyond honoring whoever it was because nobody knows who the hell Beeler is. And that applies to probably most street names in neighborhoods. Alito goes on, Quote, a government that roams the land, tearing down monuments with religious symbolism and scrubbing away any reference to the divine, will strike many as aggressively hostile to religion. 
militantly secular regimes have carried out such projects in the past. Yeah, he's right about that. Right now, you've got some religious fanatical groups across the globe that tear down historical buildings, destroy artwork because they represent some other religion's beliefs or something that doesn't jibe with this fanatic's religion. So they destroy the stuff. Clearly anti-religious, even though those things, even though these things have other meaning to other people. You don't have to be a member of some religion to appreciate the art of that religion. And destroying it because it's religious destroys it for every purpose. And in essence, that's what the, the majority of the court is saying here. The court goes on. These considerations show that retaining established, religiously expressive monuments, symbols, and practices is quite different from erecting or adopting new ones. The passage of time gives rise to a strong presumption of constitutionality. Alito for the court goes on. Finally, as World War I monuments have endured through the years and become a familiar part of the physical and cultural landscape, requiring their removal would not be viewed by many as a neutral act. And then, <laughs> I just like this part because they throw some shade at a member of the Fourth Circuit. Alita writes, one member of the majority below, so one of those guys, and they name him, quote, misunderstands the complexity of monuments. So the Supreme Court just called out a Fourth Circuit judge and said he misunderstood the complexity of the issue. I'm amused by that. Because I've seen judges do that to litigants before, and it's just cool to know that judges will do that to judges lower on the totem pole as well. He goes back to the names of cities with religious origins. Making this case about tearing them down or changing them would be an aggressive move against the religious nature of those things, even though they're just place names at this point, despite their original meanings. Specifically, he goes, For example, few would say that the state of California is attempting to convey a religious message by retaining the names given to many of the state's cities by their original Spanish settlers, San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, San Jose, San Francisco. But it would be something else entirely if the state undertook to change all those names. Much the same is true about monuments to soldiers who sacrificed their lives for this country more than a century ago. Seems like a reasonable point to me. And much like the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court room make it hard to argue religious symbols can't be on a roadside somewhere, Alito makes this point. Prior cases, prior precedent, teaches instead that the Establishment Clause must be interpreted by reference to historical practices and understandings, and that the decision of the first Congress to provide for the appointment of chaplains only days after approving language for the First Amendment demonstrates that the framers considered legislative prayer a benign acknowledgment of a religion's role in society. He also talks about Washington called for a national day of prayer. So if those guys back then who crafted the First Amendment thought that was okay, I guess it was. That's the argument. And if that was okay, so is a cross on the side of a road that is devoted to the memory of war dead, American war dead. Alito makes reference to an anecdote about that time period when they are agreeing to hire a chaplain or have a chaplain for Congress. He says, Although the United States at the time was overwhelmingly Christian and Protestant, there was considerable friction between Protestant denominations. Thus, when an Episcopal clergyman was nominated as chaplain, some Congregationalist members of Congress objected due to the diversity of religious sentiments represented in Congress. Nevertheless, Samuel Adams, a staunch Congregationalist, spoke in favor of the motion. He said, I am no bigot. I can hear a prayer from a man of piety and virtue who is at the same time a friend of his country. Others agreed, and the chaplain was appointed. So he's trying to show that one particular type of religion isn't exclusive of all the other ones. That's the argument. So I get the point, but there's only one Christian cross in Bladensburg, not a series of rotating symbols, right? So I get the point, but it's not exactly the same thing. Nevertheless, Alito says, The practice begun by the First Congress stands out as an example of respect and tolerance for differing views, an honest endeavor 
to achieve inclusivity and non-discrimination, and a recognition of the important role that religion plays in the lives of many Americans, where categories of monuments, symbols, and practices with a long-standing history following that tradition, they are likewise constitutional. He talks about how the Humanist Association's brief tried to connect the Bladensburg Cross and the American Legion with anti-Semitism and the KKK, but he says... The AHA's disparaging intimations have no evidentiary support. And again, he mentions that the black and white soldiers' names were both on the plaque, the same memorial. He goes on, We can never know for certain what was in the minds of those responsible for the memorial, but in light of what we know about the ceremony, because he talks about how a Baptist and a Catholic priest gave prayers at the same ceremony, but in light of what we know about the ceremony, we can perhaps make out a picture of a community that, at least for the moment, was unified by grief and patriotism, and rose above the divisions of the day. So you have that part from the Supreme Court. And one can take the position that no level of government should have anything to do with religion, but then one must overlook the first Congress and its chaplain, right? And to do that, one must disregard the original intent or say that the founders didn't know the meaning of the words they adopted. And I can actually see that argument having some legitimacy. Why? Because within a decade of the Bill of Rights, which is more properly the Bill of Restrictions, because it doesn't give anybody any rights, it restricts government power. But within a decade of the first 10 amendments being adopted, Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Act, and President John Adams signed it into law. There's no way to reconcile those acts with the First Amendment. So maybe the first chaplain is another example of them disregarding their own words shortly after they were adopted. I don't know. But I see that argument, and I can't dismiss that out of hand. Congress has done stuff unconstitutional since day one, and citing a potential example of them doing something unconstitutional isn't a reason to keep doing it. At least one can make that argument. Alito and the majority did give this a lot of consideration, obviously, and came out the other way, which I find reasonable, if still problematic in some ways. I'll wrap it up the way Alito does for the court. The cross is undoubtedly a Christian symbol, but that fact should not blind us to everything else that the Bladensburg Cross has come to represent. For some, that monument is a symbolic resting place for ancestors who never returned home. For others, it is a place for the community to gather and honor all veterans and their sacrifices for our nation. For others still, it is a historical landmark. For many of these people, destroying or defacing the cross that has stood undisturbed for nearly a century would not be neutral and would not further the ideals of respect and tolerance embedded in the First Amendment. For all these reasons, the cross does not offend the Constitution. There you have it. Five justices agreed with that rationale. Alito, Roberts, Breyer, Kagan, and Kavanaugh. Two more agree with the result. The cross can stay, but they get there a different way. It's Thomas and Gorsuch. And Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissented altogether. They wanted it to go. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 39, The Bladensburg Cross Case, American Legion versus the American Humanist Association. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, check us out over there at speakeasyideas.com. Hit me up with your comments. Again, that's Twitter at BlueCarp, Facebook.com slash BlueCarp is my personal Facebook page, and the Facebook page for this podcast, The Law with D.K. Williams. And of course, feel free to donate at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. Until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.